Welcome to season three of Overcoming Working Mum Burnout. I'm your host, Dr. Jacqueline Kerr, mum, behavior scientist, and burnout survivor. I interview DEI leadership and mental health experts to uncover burnout solutions at the individual, family, work, and cultural levels. When mums thrive, the world benefits. Please take a moment to check out my website at drjacquelinekerr.com. Click on the free guides button and find solutions for burnout that support individual team and organizational change. If you're worried about regrettable turnover and quiet quitting, but already have too much on your plate, I can provide a comprehensive roadmap to help you improve wellness, belonging, and engagement through an overarching burnout prevention strategy. So you can have thriving, diverse leadership teams. Dr. Sharon Grossman is a psychologist and coach. She hosts the podcast Decoding Burnout and is the author of The 7 E Solutions to Burnout. Sharon walks us through the 12 stages of burnout from Freudenberger and North, providing examples that we can spot in ourselves and our colleagues. She also then suggests different solutions, depending on whether you have the energy to self-coach or whether you need support and accountability from an external coach. Sharon loves working with high-achieving women in medicine to help them find different ways to thrive in a challenging environment. I hope you learn as much from this conversation as I did. So my name is Sharon Grossman, and I am a mother of two kids one who is turning nine and the other is a sixth grader and she is going to be turning 12 very soon. Yeah. So I am a psychologist, but I also am a burnout recovery coach. So I work with people who are in high stress industries, most typically women in medicine, executives, entrepreneurs, and I help them work on really recovering from anxiety, overcoming their limiting beliefs, increasing their energy levels, and really overcoming burnout and preventing it from happening again. So that's some of what I do on a day-to-day basis. If you could start by describing your journey to where you are now in your career in a little more detail and include anything in it related to whether motherhood changed that trajectory or your path. Yeah. So I, as I mentioned, I started out as a psychologist and I studied psychology way before I had kids, but I think that all throughout my career, the thing that was the thread through it all was I had this value, which I still really have that drive everything I do today, which is the value of lifestyle. And so I had that as somebody who was single And then I got married and have these two kids. But I think my whole life I've had this thing where I always make decisions based on how it's going to impact that thing that I value very much in my life, which is having a certain lifestyle. And that means a lifestyle of balance where I get to do work that I'm very passionate about that I think has a sense of meaning like beyond myself where I can serve other people and outside of work to be able to live a really full life where I am not just raising my kids, but I have time for myself. I have time for the things that 
are important to me, like my extended family, my friends, traveling, dancing, like all the things that I like to do. And so it's, as you know, very tricky, especially as you have kids and you have more and more commitments and I have my own business. So there's a lot of different balls in the air. And so it's a work in progress. And it really is about figuring out what is important to you, how you can make that happen, and then constantly reiterating as you go through life. And as an example of that, even though I am, quote unquote, the burnout doc, and I help people with all this stuff and not to get overwhelmed and stressed out, as a business owner, I have so many things that I do. And so I'm constantly going in and trying to refine my systems and figure out what can I delegate out to my virtual assistant and what things can I systematize and get off my plate. And so at the beginning of 2022, one of the things that I started doing was really going through a bunch of my emails and unsubscribing, because if you think about how much time you spend on just going through your inbox every day, that can take up a lot of your time and it's a huge distraction. So I'm like, what if I can clear out my inbox? What if I can have certain things that I never get again? And what are the other things that maybe I can have my virtual assistant do? And so I'm still working on this process, but it's like, I'm constantly coming in and trying to find a new angle where I can alleviate some of the pressure and some of the stress on myself so that I have more time to do the things that are important that make a difference. Cause like me checking my email doesn't really make a difference in the world. And that's such a good one. When I think about that, all these emails that come in that I've subscribed to, and actually I was given a tip to create a second email so that all the subscriptions can go in there. And if you then want to go look through them, because you're looking to see if there's useful information that you need, you can find it in there. It's not gone, but you're not having to scroll through and delete, et cetera. So that's definitely already a great tip out of the shoot here. So tell me a little bit, Mel, how you came to then focus on burnout as your main career focus. Yeah. So I was working as a psychologist in private practice and I decided that I was going to do some coaching and I was doing that on the side. And then over time, I really loved the coaching. I would say maybe even more so than the therapy. And so I decided at some point I need to switch over. And if I'm going to do that and I'm building this up, I want to be really strategic. And that's how I approach a lot of things in my life and in my business. So I asked myself, who are the people that I like working with the most? As a psychologist, I basically worked with anybody who came through the door, but I felt as a coach, I can be a little bit more descriptive about the people that I want to work with and build up a business that is a little bit more niched. And so I said, I really love working with super high achievers. And then if you want to go even more detail oriented, I really love women in medicine very much because I feel like they deal with a lot of the issues that you talk about, Jacqueline, of the working mom. They're also like super givers. So they give so much of themselves also at work. And what I was hearing over and over again was that they were looking for that exit strategy because they were so burned out doing what they're doing. And the truth of the matter is they didn't really want to leave medicine. They just couldn't figure out how to do it differently. And the thought that they had to give it up and that they had to find something else that was more sustainable 
was what they thought was necessary, but it was also heartbreaking for them. And so I thought I can help them. I've been teaching a lot of these things to my clients for the last 20 years. Why can't I just take all of my tools and strategies that I teach to my clients and apply it to people who have burnout? And that's where I started doing a little bit more research on burnout. I put together all of that and all of my tools and strategies into a book, which you know, because you just read it. So that's the 7E solution to burnout. And then I said, this is a great guide for people who want to coach themselves. But I also recognize that not everyone is going to have the bandwidth to do that, especially if they are that far gone into the land of burnout. If you've really gotten into the later stages of burnout, it might be really hard to do it yourself. And so I thought then I can step in and guide them through. And that's where I created my program, Exhausted to Extraordinary. So it all started from this vision of who do I want to work with? How can I serve them? And then bringing together all of my experience and tools and expertise and putting it together in a step-by-step system that they can follow that would be really insightful for them where they're learning some of the skills that they don't really teach in schools, but that are super helpful and that are backed by research to help people really thrive and be able to stay in their profession if they choose to. And that's so important for listeners to hear, because I know there are a lot of mothers in medicine out there listening to this. That was where I came from. I was in a school of medicine and it is really challenging. It is really challenging. There's a lot of data showing that women in those environments are at much higher risk of burnout and serious burnout leading to suicide or suicide ideation. And we can also see all the data on how our publications, once we become mums, our publication rate drops. We're perfectly capable beforehand. It's not we're not capable, but then the additional challenges of mothering in this environment really affects our productivity And then you see it. There are very few full professors at the top of their fields who are working moms. And I think that has such an impact, not only on who are the caregivers who are out there in the healthcare system, but who also are the role models in medical education as well. I'm so glad you're focusing on this group and that it's definitely so important. And to your point, there are perhaps as a result of this, fewer of them up there. But in addition, you also have the people who are really trying to still balance all of these things, to really juggle all of the things that they were doing before they became moms and putting so much pressure on themselves and then feeling like what they do is never enough, right? And they're walking around with this sense of doom and gloom because it's no matter what I do at work, it's never enough. And they want to help everybody and they want to say yes to everybody's requests. I have a client who is a physician and she's also a researcher and she gets constantly asked, do you want to edit this journal? Do you want to contribute to this research project? Do you want to present at this conference? And that's on top of her clinical duties and on top of the fact that she also has two young children. So she's trying to do all that and exercise and eat healthy and, you know, one person can only do so much. And because she has that internal pressure, she feels like 
whatever she does isn't enough. And there's so much guilt. I don't know if you've talked about this, but there's so much guilt that working moms feel, especially when they are programmed to believe that they need to do more than they're already doing. Absolutely. The never enough feeling is something that I can really relate to. And when I then understood that's a part of perfectionism is understanding that feeling of never being enough. And unfortunately, it is also reinforced in that environment. I remember, for example, getting in a $10 million research grant and being told, no, it couldn't be publicized and promoted. We had to go through the school's PR department. And no, it couldn't be promoted because there was someone else who got a hundred million dollar grant. So you were always being told you weren't good enough. I mean, constantly really being told that whatever you did was not enough. And again, I moved to getting the $10 million grants because I was told that would be more impactful. And then once I got there, oh no, sorry, it's not enough. So yeah, that is really reinforced there, which I think is a big challenge. But I also am so glad that you are trying to help mums stay in those positions. Because one, I think it's so important we're there. And two, because I left literally feeling like my hair was on fire and just didn't know how to find a way through. And certainly since leaving, I've discovered coaching and have read more about burnout to understand what I was going through. But at the time, I just didn't know I needed it. I just assumed that I was failing and that I was incapable of doing this thing. And and it's so painful. It's so painful when you leave that sort of job because you do it for a reason because you're trying to help other people. And it's so hard to lose that identity. So yeah, I'm really glad you're helping mothers stay in that position. Yeah. And you've spent probably 10 years of your life getting there. Oh yeah. 20 at least. And that was what was so sad to me too. Cause I feel like when I did get to the table, I kept saying I'd have young female mentees who are moms who couldn't get to the conferences they wanted to go to, couldn't do all the networking that was so important as part of their career. And I would say, Hey, it might take us longer to get there. But when we get there, we're going to be much more fully formed humans to be able to help. But when I got there, I was exhausted and I wasn't able to help anymore. I was so burned out. So I really started to question that hopeful message that I had been providing. And so, yeah, one person can't solve this. We definitely need a lot of support. We need policy and programmatic changes, but we do need coaches like you out there just helping us get perspective and work through it. Yeah. And I also think that you sometimes need to revisit your goals and think about, is this still something that I want? And if so, what does that look like now? And maybe it's changed or maybe you have to think about what else do I want and what's more important? And is there a way to get all of my things done and Maybe it's just not the right timing or maybe it's the right timing, but I need more support. There's so many variations of this, right? So if some of my clients are like, I want to be the best mother. And so they want to be all in with their kids. And so they're willing to maybe forego being top of their industry at work. And that's a very personal choice. And there are other moms who are the complete opposite. And they're like, please, somebody handle my kids so I can go to all the conferences and do all the things, right? And 
there is no right or wrong. It's just a personal choice. And then you have to figure out what do I want to do? How do I make that happen? What tools and strategies and support do I need in order to be able to do what I would like to do in the world. And it's challenging because we want to be the best everywhere. Ah, Yes, we do. So let's get into some of the details of your book as well. And then we'll talk a little bit about more some of the different services you offer and the differences in different clients. But one of the things I noticed from your book straight away that I found really helpful was you described these 12 stages from Freudenberger and North, which basically can help you recognize while you're at it burnout. Now, obviously, a lot of listeners listeners maybe are going to be already experiencing burnout, but a lot of people don't realize that they are on the pathway to it, or they don't know whether that pathway started. And I feel like a lot of managers could hear these 12 stages and actually then go, oh, I recognize that stage in some of my employees so that we can move this to prevention. That's really what I want to be able to think about. So I found those 12 stages that you include in the book really helpful. So if you could just describe them to help people think about how can we see this and interrupt this path to burnout earlier. Yeah. And I think he does a really nice job of taking us through this little journey. And what I want to say before we go into these 12 steps is that burnout looks really different for everybody. Not everybody goes through all 12 stages. There's different reasons why people burn out. There's so much to know about burnout that we're obviously not going to be able to cover everything in one episode. But as I describe these things, just as you're listening, think about, is this what my experience is? Or perhaps is this what I'm seeing in my colleagues? Because I, again, I think we often don't realize that we're burning out until it's too late or I have people tell me, oh, now in retrospect, that job that I left three years ago, I was burned out then, but I didn't realize it until now. So I often want to encourage people to see if they can see it in somebody else, and then maybe they can help support them as they're going through it. Without further ado, stage one of the Freudenberger and fourth stage of burnout is compulsion to prove. And that's really, especially if you are somebody who's a high achiever, right? So you come into your field and you're like, I really want to prove myself. I want to show that I can be helpful and that I have something to contribute. And so that's totally normal. We have that desire to do. But when that desire becomes a compulsion, that's where you start getting into burnout territory. So you want to notice really, what is that difference between simple desire and compulsion? And the difference I would say is it's like when you think about OCD, right? You have people who are obsessed with something. And so they start performing like different acts in order to alleviate some of their anxiety. So if you're super anxious about, especially if you've got perfectionism, imposter syndrome, things like that, there's always that nagging voice in your head that says, that's not really that good. Or somebody else is doing something more than you are. And so you're now having to do more, it becomes compulsive. Okay. And from there, what happens stage two is you start working harder and that compulsion becomes confused with dedication and commitment. 
And that can translate into an unwillingness to delegate work out, responsibilities, domestic chores, because you worry about losing control, right? So you often hear this, especially in entrepreneurs, like I can't have somebody else do the things that I do because they're not going to do it as well as I can do it. I had somebody on my podcast talk about how they were working all these hours and they came home and they have five kids at home and their husband was a stay-at-home dad. But as a mother, she was like, it's my job to do all the things with the kids. And it was too much. And that's part of why she burned out. And then he's fully capable of doing these things. But I just worried that he wasn't going to be able to do it as well as I could do it. And that's nonsense. Like we know as parents that Yes, everybody's going to do it a little differently, but at the end of the day, it's fine. Like it gets the job done. If you make this kind of a sandwich or that kind of a sandwich for your kid's lunch, like it's not going to have such a crazy impact on their life. But if you don't have to do another thing, then maybe take that off your plate because you're already doing so much. So that's really step two. Then what we see in step three is you start to neglect your own needs. That's where you start to put off chores and pleasures until later, because you're like, I still have more work to do. You might feel that there's some dissatisfaction in what you're doing. You're not as efficient in your work, which makes it really hard to make those decisions. So everything's taking longer. You might lose things like your files. You start to feel some of the symptoms of burnout, which then makes it even harder for you to be efficient. So there's like that fatigue, trouble sleeping. You're not able to stop thinking about work. And then you might start engaging in some escapist activity. So you might start drinking an extra glass of wine. Maybe you eat more sweets. Maybe you spend more time shopping on Amazon, right? Everybody's got their own version of that. So think about what is that for you? You know, as you're really neglecting your true needs and covering up all of the stress and disappointment and guilt and overwhelm and all of the feelings that you have with these escapist activities. And then in step four, this is where we dismiss conflict and needs. So when Someone brings up the fact that maybe you're spending too much time at work. What do you do when they bring that to your attention? You actually double down and you say, oh, but I just have to finish this project. They don't get it. And once I finish this, things will be fine. And so you're always like finding another reason why you should stay in it. And so as you're doing that, as you're spending more and more time and working even harder to prove that you can do it. You start to feel that fatigue. You can't get rest. You start maybe skipping some meals or maybe you're overeating, right? You're aware that something isn't right, but you're not necessarily noticing some of the symptoms that you're having from stress and how that's really affecting you. So you're so in it that you can't even see it. Now, stage five is... Now you're trying to adjust to your environment. You're really trying to make it work. And in so doing, you feel like you have to revise your values. So everything that isn't work-related, you might deem unimportant. So if you're a working mom and you obviously love your kids, you might be married and love your spouse, 
all of a sudden everybody takes a seat in like the, they're all on the back burner. Your notions of work-life balance go out the window. You don't have time for friends. All of your hobbies are like, "Eh, I'll do it when I have time. You're so focused on getting the job done that you're sacrificing everything in your life. So that's a massive problem because you're so focused on one thing, which is your work, that everything else falls apart. And you think that it's necessary, right? You're so compelled to succeed and get it done that you're willing to do that. Then stage six is where your denial becomes heightened. So you're starting to lose the ability to distinguish between what is and isn't essential in your life. Most of your time starts to compress into the present. You might sever your relationships with the past and the future. And when problems do emerge, you deny them. You might become cynical or place the blame. And I see this a lot with my clients on the demands of the job in the time frame, rather than the changes that have occurred in your life. So I often see people not realize they're burned out or realize that they're burned out and then say, oh, it's because there's too much on me for my job. And they're not really recognizing how much of their own stuff they're bringing to the table. Like how much of this is really your own internal pressure to make sure everything gets done or to take over everything because you want to have control or to make sure it's done perfectly because it has to be done just right and you won't settle for anything less. There's all these things that we bring that we may not even be accounting for that contribute to this problem. Then stage seven is you really start to disengage. It's like the tipping point where you've been pouring so much of yourself in, you've let go of all of your needs. You're basically all in, you've doubled down. And then you start to accumulate all this stress. And so now it's, I've got to have some sort of a release. And so you might start to maybe use substances or start drinking a lot or do something that helps you to deal with all that stress and also really disengage. And that's where we see a lot of cynicism come in, where you start to have this really negative attitude about your work. Then stage eight is where you start to have observable behavioral changes. So that's where you might be isolating. You might be feeling really bitter. And we talked about stage seven, you've got cynicism on board now you become not so pleasant to be around. Perhaps you might be taking it out on your kids. When you come home, you might become disconnected from your own emotions. You start to withdraw and again, engaging more and more into those kind of escapisms, like the drinking, the smoking, the overeating, all the things that help you kind of stuff your emotions down. And I guess That's one version of it. And the other version is where you start to take control of your life, where you're trying to do something different in this stage. And then from there, we see depersonalization in stage nine. That's where you're disconnected from yourself, your emotions, your body, your priorities. You can't even recognize yourself anymore. You're like, who is this person? I don't recognize this person anymore. I didn't used to be like this. I'm not the kind of person who yells at my kids. I'm not the kind of person who is drinking a bottle of wine a night. I'm not the kind of person who isolates and 
I have all these friends. I haven't seen them in six months or a year or six years. And so you, you stop being able to recognize yourself. You also stop seeing others as fully human. And that's where we see a lot of that compassion fatigue, especially with people in medicine who are caregivers and their whole job is to take care of other people. But now it's oh, another person I have to see. And it just becomes a nuisance. This is a big problem because we've already said you're stressed in the max. Your attitude has really turned down. You're not taking care of yourself. You're probably having massive problems sleeping. So you have all of these physical problems, behavioral issues. People are pointing it out. Other people are seeing it in you. You're in massive denial. You're apathetic. You might start feeling worthless. And now your sense of self, your kind of your identity gets a little bit lost because, you know, you haven't been taking care of your needs for so long. And as we said, with depersonalization, you really don't recognize yourself anymore. And that leads us to stage 10, where there's that sense of emptiness. You feel hollow, you feel drained, you feel depleted. And that's where you start to become reactive and maybe even impulsive. And that can mean that you overreact in certain situations that feel stressful, right? We all have this bucket, this, what I call a stress bucket, where we can only hold so much in that bucket. And then when we don't have ways to release some of that stress and it keeps piling up at some point, it's going to start to overflow. And that's really what we're seeing. And so that's all the reactiveness. That's all the ways that we are trying to compensate and do things about, but it's like too late, right? Because we don't have things in place that help us manage the stress as it's coming into the bucket. It's overflowing. And so now you do what you've been doing and maybe you do it even more, which is now you are looking for ways to help numb you out. And then in stage 11, we see depression on board. Life starts just losing its meaning. And you're like, what is the point of all this? That's the biggest kind of depression related question that people ask is their life starts to feel meaningless. And when you are somebody who has come into this profession and you've put so much into getting there, and then once you're in it, you're also like pouring so much of yourself in and you feel like nothing I do is ever enough. Look at me. I'm a disaster. I'm falling apart. Like I've tried my best right? I've let go of everything. All the things that were important to me, I put that on the back burner. And even with all that, I still can't manage to get this done. Then what's the point really? And then you get really depressed. And that leads us to the final stage, which is where you're so burned out and you just mentally and physically collapse. You just no longer care about anything anymore. There's nothing really left in your life. You're just going through the motions and because you view your life as meaningless, oftentimes this is where we see people start to become suicidal. So I say this not to depress everybody <laughs> listening to this show, but I think it's important to see that if you think about it like a ladder and it's got these 12 rungs on it and not everybody climbs the ladder all the way up. Some people climb maybe one or two steps and other people climb halfway and other people get all the way to stage 12. And so it's like anything else. It's like depression. Like some people are lightly depressed and other people are severely depressed and it looks different because there's so many different symptoms that could be coming up. 
And we don't want to just think of burnout as this one dimensional thing. And we want to take it really seriously because it is so serious. We want to be able to identify it in others and be able to reach out to them and provide them with strategies and support and just being there for people. Even when we see that they're in denial or they're pushing back, it's not that they're not grateful It's that they're so in it, they can't see what's happening to them, but you can see it. And maybe that's where you say, hey, you know what? There's this podcast you should listen to, or there's this book that you should read, or there's this checklist that you should download, or just have a conversation, just listen. And you can reflect back and say, wow, it sounds like you are taking on a lot. How's that working out for you? What's happening? How are you feeling? I know you also have three kids at home, or I know that I haven't seen you in six months. I'm just curious, like, how are you doing? And I think having that human connection sometimes can jerk people out of their bubble and help them to get back in touch with reality. And unfortunately, that's not always the case. And what we do see instead is that your body starts to break down, which I didn't really cover in those 12 steps. But we just anecdotally from interviewing so many people on burnout, this is what I hear over and over again. And so in addition to all of the physical exhaustion, the mental exhaustion and the stress and all that stuff that we talked about, there's a real thing that happens with your body where it just can't get you to stop. And so it gets worse all the time. Like your body is trying to converse with you and it might give you some signs in the beginning, like maybe you get a headache and typically if you get a headache, Maybe you take it easy for a little bit and it's just trying to get you to pay attention. Or maybe you just feel like there's this mental fog that you can't focus. And then maybe the idea is, oh, because I can't focus, maybe I should just take the rest of the day off. Maybe I should go for a walk or maybe I should just meditate or something for a few minutes and see what happens. Maybe I should get some sleep. So there's all these things that I think our body's trying to send us these messages and Oftentimes what I see is the super high achievers are the ones that aren't listening. And they're like, no, I got to power through. So no matter what's happening, like I've had people tell me that they're in the emergency room and they're working on their laptop. So we have the people who don't listen to the messages. And those are the people that burn out time and time again. And I've heard people as much as three hospitalizations as a result of burnout until finally They got the message and they're like, all right, this is clearly not working. I don't want to end up dead. Like something needs to change. I appreciate you persevering through those stages and describing them with such great examples as well. I think that's why I asked you to do it was because when I read it, I was like, oh my God, this was my journey. So it really resonated with me. But also I think each time that we're going to try and prevent burnout, because again, if we don't change that base step one rung, which is that I have to work really hard to prove myself, then we can still keep climbing up that ladder. So not only for ourselves to prevent burnout again, because it does happen again and again, potentially, but like you said, to help us recognize it in others, because I think that's so important. So let's get into more of your solutions. So you have these seven E's that you describe in your book. And then also you talk about these things in your podcast and in your coaching services, but let's talk about your solutions. And again, if you have any ways of saying, 
this one is the key that you have to start with. Or if you see that all of them, you've discovered for your research that all of them are equally important and we need to think about them. That's a really good question. And I would say this, if somebody's listening to this show and they identify themselves in one of the 12 stages that we just listed, I think the solution is going to depend on what you're dealing with. But when I wrote the book, I really thought these are the things that could be universally helpful, regardless of how you got there and how bad it is, because these are the things that we all need to learn to be really resilient in the workplace and to work smarter, not harder. And I think if we go back to stage one is about that need to prove yourself. And so I think maybe starting by even questioning, why is this so important? Why do I need to prove this? And what am I willing to stop at? In other words, like, yes, this is important to me. I want to be successful in my career. I want to make a difference. I want to make a contribution, but at what price? And so if you're asking those kinds of questions, I would skip right to E number seven in the book, which is about enlightenment and the way that I really define enlightenment in this book is that you're lightening your load. And a lot of what makes our load heavy is our thoughts. And so we're looking at how can you get back into a sense of purpose and how can you overcome some of those really negative beliefs that might be leading you to make the bad decisions. So if you have a belief, for instance, that you're not enough, then you're going to be more driven to prove that you are enough so that you don't have to feel all the negative emotions that come from hearing that voice tell you, but you're not good enough. So in E7, we actually talk about all of that. So how to really change your whole mindset and getting back to that sense of purpose. So that could be really aligned with that first step. If you're in step two, where you're working really harder all the time because you have that compulsion, then I would say E number six would be really helpful because E number six is about effort. And one of the things I talk about, which really comes from this Buddhist principle, they talk about right effort. So I incorporate some kind of spiritual components in the book for people who want to think bigger and be inspired, but also how to work smarter, not necessarily harder. And that's how we started the episode today, talking about how even myself, I'm constantly reiterating and trying to find systems and ways that I can take things off my plate. So how do you work smarter? That would be E number six. And so as you go through each one of these steps, you could probably find something in the book if you wanted to just hone in on that one solution. But I also think that as a system, these work really well together because they give you so many tools that can help you deal with stress. And ultimately burnout is about chronic stress. So if you know how to deal with stress and what we know about stress, just to define even that term It's about perception. It's about how we perceive our situation. So when your job is requiring you to do a certain project, 
what are you making it mean? What are the thoughts that come through your head? And if you're somebody who believes that you're not good enough, then you're going to have different thoughts about that than somebody who believes that they're a rock star and they can handle anything or somebody who believes that I'm going to get this done as quickly as possible so that I can get back home and spend time with my kids or that I can go to that yoga class or that I can go and meet my friend for dinner. So everybody's going to have different interpretations of their circumstances. And so this really teaches you what is getting you to feel so stressed out and how can you actually reverse engineer how you want to feel and how you have to think in order to feel that way. So there's a lot in here that you can coach yourself through it. And that's a really great resource. I spent a lot of time and energy putting this together to help people help themselves. And with that, I would say, if you're listening to this, you're not quite sure what's happening, if you're burned out or not, what you should be focusing on. I think a great place to start is I've got a burnout checklist. So I encourage everybody to just go and download that. You can find it on my website at drsharongrossman.com forward slash burnout checklist. And it'll take you through uh, these different symptoms that are pretty common because you might not be connecting the dots. You might be like, oh, I'm having headaches or something. And then you think, oh, it's just a headache, but maybe there's something more to it. And so we want to be able to say, oh, actually I have a lot of these different symptoms now that I think about it. And so now it's shining a light on maybe there is something going on. Maybe I am in the process of burning out. And based on that, I need to do X, Y, and Z. And so the checklist actually tells you what you can start to do. And then I also follow up with a variety of different emails and solutions that can help you in other aspects of your life around burnout. I always encourage people to start from that, just a bit of a self-assessment, see how you are doing, and then you'll know what you need to go to as a solution from there. I think that's so awesome that it is part of that sort of system because otherwise we do feel overwhelmed. Seven E's isn't a lot, but when you're burned out, that could even seem overwhelming. So knowing where you're at and what you're experiencing, how to approach it all, I think makes so much sense. And again, it's going to change, right? Because as you start to manage one area of your life differently or as you manage to process or perceive stress differently, then another one of the E's comes into play that this will help you either move on with your next symptom or issue that you need to face or just reinforces the one you've just worked on and helps you take it to another level. I think it's so helpful that it's that clear. It's such a great guide. Thank you. Yeah, I hope that it is something that people feel like it can help them so that they can at least get started with that journey. And then also in the book, there's um, resources beyond what's actually in the book itself. So there's a bunch of things also online and it comes with a workbook. So you can actually take yourself through some of the exercises and start to apply what you're learning. That's general information to your specific situation. And I think that's where we see the most impact. We want to not just absorb information that's generic, but also start to think about how can I apply this in my life? So I do think that's really helpful workbooks. And it does take work. We do have to spend time thinking about these things and owning what part we play in it. But then what is the biggest barrier to people actually actioning these steps that you are recommending putting the work in? And how do you help people overcome those types of barriers? Like I said, 
in the beginning. I think that the book is really helpful for people who aren't so far up that ladder, who have the bandwidth to learn and start to think about their situation and start to experiment and play with some of these ideas, they can take the book and kind of coach themselves through it. But as you get further and further up that ladder, I believe that you need more because you just don't have the bandwidth to think about another thing, to take on another thing. And so that's where you need more support. You need more accountability. You need more structure. And I think that's where coaching comes in. I think coaching is really helpful for people who feel really overwhelmed already and they gain a little bit more of that structure of, okay, this is when we're meeting, this is what you're going to focus on in between sessions. And then there's a check-in. So there's accountability. There's just a lot that happens in a short amount of time when you work with a coach that is harder to achieve when you're doing it by yourself. So even with all the best tools, and I give everything away in this book, I really don't hold back. I share everything that I know. Even with that, I think there's some limitations, especially if your brain's already fried and you don't have the energy and you can't now find the time for something else. There's so many barriers when you're burned out that I think you have to get to a point in your life where you say, I'm ready. I'm done. I can't keep doing it like this. And rather than say, I'm done, I'm going to end my life. It should be, I'm done doing this by myself, doing it in this way. I got to find another way. And if coaching can help me, I'm all in, right? Because now what we're seeing is everybody's going on these sabbaticals, but I don't know if that necessarily solves anything. If you then come back to work and you're going to approach work in the same way that you were before, you're just going to burn out again. So it's not about just escaping reality because it feels stressful. I think it's about figuring out a way of engaging with your work that makes sense. When I think about my journey, that's what I did. I took a three-month medical leave and I did not shut everything down by any means, but I just gave myself that space to incorporate more time, to do more self-care. And so my stress symptoms reduced and I started to be able to manage my stress, let's say that. But then I went back into work and oh my God, it hit me like a truck because now I was calm. My nervous system had readjusted and suddenly it hit me and I still didn't know how to say no. And I think that back to what you described about one of your clients just constantly being asked things. I started to track my yeses and nos because I was trying to increase the number of times I said no. And it was when I then just looked at all these and went, oh my God, I'm asked so many times a week to do new things. No wonder I feel like I can't say no or no wonder I feel overwhelmed. So even in that process, even though I didn't really get better at at saying no at that time, at least I could acknowledge to myself, this is ridiculous what is coming through. And so, yeah, I totally agree that having clearer and more structured coaching, if you are going to take time off, I think it is good to take time off. I think it's hard to do this while you're in the middle of things. So if you do take time off, as you say, resetting and resting is part of it, but really having a clear program and goal so that when you go back, you can manage yourself in that environment, but also then have those conversations about 
what needs to change in the environment. Now, some of it you don't have control over, but certainly you can set different boundaries around it. Yeah. And I love that you did that exercise where you tracked how many times people ask you for things, because so often, if you're the kind of person who has a hard time saying no, it feels like you're the worst person in the world that you've just turned somebody down. But that's because you're not putting it into perspective. If you said to yourself, you know what? I've been asked a hundred times in the last three days to do something. And I've said, yes, 99 out of a hundred, all of a sudden that one no doesn't feel like you're such a bad person. But how many people are actually doing that where they're tracking all of the yeses? They're just focused on the one no and what that means about them. And I think that comes back down to your programming, which I think is really important to address. I think you're program to believe things about yourself and you're more likely to interpret events that are happening right now through that lens, that's really dangerous because it's going to keep you in that perpetual cycle of always saying yes, when really it's not sustainable. It's not, you haven't checked into reality to see if it's even possible given everything else you have on your plate. There's all these issues with that. And so I think that is a good example of where you need to really step back, take a look at the big picture, what's happening, and can I even say yes? And what does it mean if I say no? And even just being conscious of it. We just so often are just not conscious that we are making choices. Saying yes is a choice, even though you feel like you have no choice. So you feel like a victim and not feeling able to control things. But yeah, I definitely had to step up and really own how much I was doing to myself as well. If there was like one behavior change you would recommend for working moms and or companies to start today, what would that be? I recently heard somebody say when you're working in an organization as a leader, something that you can do to help your team is that maybe every Friday you gather everybody up for maybe 30 minutes and you ask what has been stressful this week. Because I think when we typically have these meetings, we're talking about projects, we're talking about deadlines, we're talking about progress, but we're not addressing how we feel and how it's impacting us and what we're dealing with. And I think there is a lot of value in being able to acknowledge what people are dealing with. And then from that place of understanding, you can offer solutions. You can maybe take some things off people's plates or you can reset expectations or maybe people can chime in and help each other. So from an organizational perspective, I think that's a really great tip. I would say for working moms, it's having some sort of check in with yourself on a regular basis where you think about what you have going on. You've got your family, you've got your work, you've got your health, you've got your relationships, like all these different aspects of your life. And how are you doing in each of those areas? And are your scores on those different areas satisfactory for you? Right? Because there is no right or wrong, but are you happy with the way things are going? Or if maybe you've been neglecting your health, if you have that regular check-in with yourself, it's an opportunity to recognize what's actually happening as it's happening. And then say to yourself, you know what? I realize I haven't exercised for three months and 
I'm not happy about that. But you know what? Now for the next month, what I'm going to do is X, right? Like I'm going to maybe spend 30 minutes walking during my lunch break, or I'm going to wake up a little bit earlier before the kids are up and I'm going to do some yoga, or I'm going to have a conversation with a friend or listen to a podcast and walk around the neighborhood after the kids have gone to sleep. And that helps me get something done, like either socialize with my friend or get caught up on things that I want to listen to in my personal time. So I'm creating that space for myself while also exercising, right? So we have to get creative with this, but I think ultimately, if you can have that check-in with yourself on the regular, and I would encourage people, if you want to take that strategy up, that you create a recurring reminder in your calendar that you can be reminded to do that, check in with yourself over and over again. I think that would be really helpful. You can see how you're doing each and every month and have just a little time to reflect on how things are going. And maybe there's some tweaks that you can make and from month to month, see if the tweaks that you've been making are moving you in the right direction. And that's such great advice. Again, also those practical tips about how to make it habit. I know those steps can be challenging. I use these huge post-its, like easel size post-its. I have those around our house for all sorts of things. Sometimes it's like the post-COVID wish list that we want to go to Legoland or whatever it is. But yeah, even having one of those with my scores for those all in one place and for me to see it, because what's so important, I think, in what you're saying is if I have a score out of 10 about how happy I am with my health, for example, and it's two. And then beneath it, I have a score out of 10 for how happy I am with my work or productivity, and it's 10. I've got to look at those two numbers and go, okay, my 10 has to come down to an eight here. I can't put so much time into this work thing if I want my health score to move from a two to a four. I think something about really forcing us to make those equations. I think we have to prioritize. And I don't think that we have to get to 10 in anything. I don't think we have to be a 10 out of 10 mother. And I don't think we have to be a 10 out of 10 worker. And I don't think we have to be a 10 out of 10 spouse. I think we have to have more compassion with ourselves and say, you know what? I'm human and I'm not going to be perfect. And I don't expect myself to be perfect. And I could be an eight in one area. Great. That's probably the max that we should be striving for. And if you've got five, six, eight areas in your life that you're trying to juggle, then probably more realistically, you're going to be somewhere between a five and an eight if you're doing well. So just having realistic expectations. If you get a five somewhere, doesn't mean you're failing. It just means you've got a lot going on. Thanks so much for listening today. Don't forget to check out my website, www.drjacquelinecurr.com for your free guides to prevent burnout. And please remember, burnout can be related to serious health problems. If you're experiencing physical or mental health symptoms, please contact a health provider or call the appropriate helpline. This podcast does not replace medical advice. Take care.